justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. The idea of cheap grace is not something that is new to our generation, though maybe it is new to us. It is something that has been in the church for since the day that the church was birthed, since the day that Christ gave his life for his church, the church has been plagued with cheap grace. In the days in which Scripture was written in the first century, the apostles dealt with a pernicious heresy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism had a, a variety of forms, but one of the forms that it took was that the body is corrupt and the spirit is good. And therefore, since the body is corrupt and will decay, what you do in your body will not affect your spirit. And so therefore, the spirit is good and it will live eternally with God, but the, the body will be corrupt and it will decay away. So whatever you do in your body will not affect your spirit. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. I can eat, drink, and be merry. I can abuse my body in whatever ways I want to because it does not affect my spirit. Cheap grace, and this became uh, a threat to the church. Cheap grace, doesn't matter. I'm under grace. I can do what I want and live the way I please. So, as we come to our text this morning, let me give us a little bit of context and uh, look at where we have been so that we might see more clearly where we are going. Because where we are going today is something a little bit different for the book of Galatians, because in the book of Galatians, the context of the book of Galatians has been legalism. Paul has been arguing against a legalistic idea. And what I mean by that is that a person can add to the work of Christ. The work of Christ was good, but not sufficient. It did not completely atone for your sin. You must add to the work of Christ. But the work of the cross was really good, but, well, it wasn't quite good enough. So you need to be circumcised. Or you need to um, adhere to certain dietary laws. Or you need to, needed to observe certain holy days. And in doing so, then, that would complete the work of Christ, if you will. In fact, we see in uh, Acts chapter 15, the, the threat or the, the, the attitude that Paul was arguing against uh, when certain people came to Jerusalem and they said, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And so this is where, this is the issue then that Paul is addressing and dealing with. And so he's been dealing with this idea that somebody must add to the work of Christ, and he has been arguing that this is actually slavery. It is bondage, and you have not been uh, saved to be a slave. You have been saved to be set free. That's where Paul's going. One of the things we have not addressed in our uh, consideration of legalism is there are at least two expressions that legalism takes. The, the first expression we might call, I call it the entry fee, for lack of a better term. In other words, that good works are a necessary payment in order to receive God's favor, that I must first do what is good and is right, and once I do enough good things, then God will receive me. I will be able to stand in the presence of God uh, justified, or right, I will have right standing with God. In other words, I put up the payment, and then God will receive me. 
That's probably a lot of what Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. But there is another form of uh, legalism that takes place, and I'll call this the loan repayment. And what this says is that grace is given up front, but then once I have grace, I have to spend my life working to show that I deserved this wonderful gift. So grace is given up front, and then I must spend my life repaying the debt by my own merit. And Paul actually addresses this issue in uh, Galatians chapter 3. He says this, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? You began in the Spirit. You began by faith. Are you now thinking that you can live out your Christian life and that you can repay that debt? See, both of these expressions of legalism place a burden on mankind. It places a burden on us to do for ourselves what God has already accomplished fully and freely in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. So that's where we've been. Here's where we're going to go. Paul is going to address a completely new threat, and this new threat we will identify as license or uh, maybe unrestra- unrestrained freedom. It is a different threat, but it is enslaving nonetheless. And so let us um, look at God's word before we do. Let's pray, and then we will read God's word. O Lord, our Father, since it has pleased you to make your will known to us by your holy word, we pray that you would enable us to receive your word with meekness and to feel its power and that thereby we might be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our gracious Lord. Amen. Amen. And so, our text today is in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. I'm probably not going to get all the way through 18, but we'll come back to it next week. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in a statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And so we look at this idea. You were not called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn, or you were called to freedom. Boy, I made a mistake there. You weren't listening to that. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul is now dealing with a completely new threat to liberty. And the question is this, can I live however I want to live? 
After all, since I've been saved by grace, can I just do whatever I want to do? If God has saved me by his grace and has secured me in that, then I should be able to live however I want. And so this is a a new threat. It's a new issue that Paul is going to deal with. Since a person is justified, that means that a person is declared in right standing. If a person is declared right um, by God's unmerited favor, then can a person live without restraint? Can we advance to the next slide? Or there we go and advance one, two more. Click twice. Okay. Philip Ryken, in his very worthy commentary on the book of Galatians, says this. He says, Whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom... License grants freedom without responsibility. You see, freedom without responsibility is the common misperception. We're Americans and we love our freedom. I have freedom to do this and freedom to do that. Hey, don't tell me what to do. I'm an American. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. I have freedom of speech. I can say whatever I want. Absolutely untrue. You can't conspire to murder. Um, You don't have that right. But anyways, I'm free. We love our freedoms. We almost lift up freedom as an idol. This is not the type of freedom, however, that Paul is talking about. For in our day, we think that freedom means that I have no responsibility whatsoever, that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. This was the uh, big issue, of course, in the 60s, the so-called free love movement. And that is that I was free to have sex with whoever I wanted. It's not really love. I think it was a terrible name because it was not love. It was selfishness. It was the minute, because love demands and requires a commitment. Love de- demands and, and requires self-giving. And we'll talk about a little bit about love as we, uh, a little later on in the message. And so it is a completely uh, misplaced phrase. It was a perversion of the idea of love, because love demands that I give myself. And I have a feeling that if the first time a situation arose, in the 60s, that that was complicated or difficult, one of the people would take off and leave. There was no love there. It was just freedom without responsibility. And this is not what Scripture is talking about when it says that you were called to freedom. See, Paul is going to argue and is arguing that license is as enslaving as legalism. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So we should probably make sure we understand what we mean by the flesh. For when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about our body, our physical body so much. What is the flesh? Well, it's more than the body. It is that part of an individual, it's that part of me that does not desire what God desires. It is that part of me that is inclined to rebel against God, to shake my fist at God, to say no to God. It is that part of me that 
is inclined to sin. If you have a new international version of the Bible, your Bibles would read, do not use this as an opportunity for your sinful nature. That is a very good interpretation. It's not a translation. Translation is uh, an opportunity for the flesh, but that's a very good interpretation. Your sinful nature, your carnal nature, that nature that is that part of you that is inclined to sin. And so you were called freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom to indulge in your sinful nature. Do not use your freedom to indulge in this desire to rebel against God. You may be free from legalism, but do not use this freedom to indulge in your sinful nature because license is as enslaving as legalism. In fact, Jesus himself said so. In John 8.34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Peter picks this up in his second epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 2.19, he says, Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And so Peter and Paul are echoing the words of Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And Paul is echoing that truth. You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity to indulge your sinful nature. Now, when we look at verse 15, don't worry, I'll come back to verse 14. I'm just going to skip over it for a second. I'm not going to ignore it completely. In verse 15, we begin to see some of the problems that were going on in the Galatian church. They Basically, they were cannibals. No, I don't mean that they were actually consuming human flesh, but they were consuming one another. They were biting. He says this, he says, um, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You see, there was really bad teaching going on after Paul and Barnabas left Galatia. When they were there, there was really good teaching going on. But after they left, some false teachers came in and began to declare that you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Or perhaps we're seeing from uh, Galatians chapter in Galatians chapter three that you must now uh, earn the salvation that God has purchased for you. And this is bad teaching. And we should not be surprised then that bad teaching produces bad fruit. So we not, should not be surprised that there is this biting and devouring and consuming of one another. Bad teaching bears bad fruit. And here's the thing. License is the pinnacle of selfishness. In fact, it is the opposite of love. And the natural result then would be to consume and to bite and devour one another. If, and I'm going to define love in a little bit, but love is uh, seeking out the, another person's highest good. It is, self, it is self-denying. It is other-centered. If I have been sold on the lie of license, that is, it's all about me and how I live out my life and how I uh, enjoy God and how I enjoy life, then it is only natural when I am consumed with self that I will ignore you or be less concerned about you. And it then it only stands to reason 
that since I don't care about you, the result will be that we begin to bite and devour and consume one another because after all, it is all about me and my desires and my needs. This, I believe, is a a terrible trend in the Western church today. We have... We are so influenced by a consumer mentality and by an individualistic mentality. After all, we're Americans and we are individuals and I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and we are, we are I am an independent individual. I need nobody else. It's just me. Well, that's fine. Except for when you come to the gospel. And when you enter into a community of faith, those things need to go out the window. And we have bought into this idea of that, um, that the spiritual life, the life of the church community can be made into a commodity. It can be a consumable item. It can be, everything can be made into something by which we fix a value onto it. Many people come to church or pick a church based on what will the return be for me? If I have to get up at 9 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning and I have to drive and get ready and go there, what will I get in return for it? You have just placed a value and a price on worship. Will it be worth my time to get up and go do that? Because if not, I'm going to find somewhere else. In fact, I just want to go find the place that is going to give me the best bang for my buck, the best return for my dollar, the best value for my... Output. Again, this is fine. In the marketplace, you can go to Walmart, and if they do not serve your needs, you can say, well, then forget it. I'm going to go to Target, or I'm going to go somewhere else. And we are so accustomed to this idea that we bring it into the church. And many churches respond by saying, if you can't fight it, join it. So we will make our church service we will commodify our church service and make you the consumer. And let's face it, what is the, the number one principle in business? That is, the customer is always right. So therefore, if you dislike something, then I will tailor everything around your needs. Unfortunately, we have, even in this small church, many desires and many needs, and I cannot meet them all. So our hope and our desire in this church is to say, we will gather together to worship God. I pray that you enjoy the time that we gather together to worship God. I pray that it is an enjoyable experience. I pray that you like the music, and I pray that you like the sermon. I pray that all of these things happen. I pray that it is good for your soul. I pray that we do not make a commodity out of worship. And this is what's going on. You can see because all that does is that enhances or that um, magnifies self. And everybody is consumed with self. And when we are consumed with self, then the natural result is that we will bite and devour one another because we are not giving of self for the benefit of others, but all we are hoping is that everybody gives for the benefit of me. And that is destructive. And a church will die. And churches do die. 
or they will become so empty because we are so busy focusing upon the, the needs of the congregation that we forget about the reason we are gathered here in the first place. I, I'm going to bust your bubble. Sorry. I know many people say that evangelism needs to be the church's greatest priority. That when we gather together, we need to make sure the gospel is preached and that people are saved. I think that's important, but it is not the greatest priority, at least not. I don't think it's the greatest priority. Our greatest priority is to exalt the name of Christ. It's to glorify God. Uh, Through that, I believe evangelism may take place and other great things may happen. But in other words, our first priority is vertical, that we gather together and we exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think when we do that, the other things kind of take care of themselves, that we will be fulfilled, that we will um, be encouraged and strengthened in all of these things. But when we gather together, our primary responsibility, my primary responsibility, I hate to say this, is not you, nor is it me. My primary responsibility, my primary priority is to exalt the name of our great God and Savior who purchased us with a great price. That is his son, Jesus Christ. And so just in case you think that um, we want to diminish the gospel, it is his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus Christ the perfect sinless son of God died in your place on a cross that you might be made right with God. He bore God's wrath on your behalf so that you would not suffer that wrath. And if you will repent and turn from your sins, Christ will forgive you, utterly forgive you, and he will save you by his wonderful gift of grace. It is by his mercies and by his grace that you will be saved. And so these people are biting and devouring one another. They are consuming one another. Here's the other thing we should note, that sin is always destructive. There is no such thing as a private sin. Paul mentioned this last week. He said a little leaven leavens the whole, the whole loaf. That when we adopt bad teaching or we adopt some, sort, some form of, uh, of self-centered, self-seeking, uh, a self-centered or a self-seeking program, it will not stay with me. It will eventually impact and affect those whom I come into contact with. Sin breeds sin, and it is not, never contained in an individual. It will, in a church, destroy a church. Sin is always destructive. It, it will also blemish the name of Christ. It will become a justification for others to reject our witness. Do you see what the perils of license is that, first of all, it will blemish the name of Christ. And if it blemishes the name of Christ, then we are not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, because that's not love. It also destroys one another, and therefore we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so license is condemned because it will destroy the name of... It blemishes the name of Christ, and it will destroy the church which Christ died to create. We will consume one another and there is no place for that in our church. And so, 
You were called to freedom, brethren, but do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for your for your sinful nature. Nature, if you are biting and devouring one another, take take care that you are not consumed by one another. The Holy Spirit then is our means of freedom. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's interesting, and we'll spend, I think we'll spend a little bit of time with this next week, but Paul uses three very interesting phrases here. In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. And then verse 18, he talks about being led by the Spirit. And then later, he talks about living in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a huge huge component in the book of Galatians. Paul is very concerned with how the Holy Spirit works out the life of Christ through us, through you. This is what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How is Christ living in Paul? By the Holy Spirit. It is Christ's Spirit living his life through Paul. It's no longer I who live. It's the risen Christ. The risen Christ is now living his life through me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we have this idea. Then Paul says, you need to walk by the Spirit. You need to be led by the Spirit. You need to live in the Spirit. So um, when we're talking about walking, this is a, uh, just basically, it, it means to walk around. The idea then is one's direction and motion is in accordance with the Holy Spirit. We are told to be led by the Spirit, that is guided by the Spirit. So, how does this Spirit led life? work itself out in freedom. From what does the Holy Spirit, us walking around in the Holy Spirit, us being led by the Holy Spirit, how is the Holy Spirit linked to freedom? What are our freedoms in the Holy Spirit? Well, in the first place, we will see that we are free from sin. Look at verse 16. Very interesting sentence here. It says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. First, there's a command. Walk by the spirit. It is an imperative. Walk by the spirit. I command you walk by the spirit. Walk around in the spirit. Order your direction and your motion in accordance with the Holy Spirit. But then there's a promise and the promise is this and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And, you know, it's really interesting. I didn't notice that till this morning. Been reading this for four weeks. And I'm going to get a little technical here. So I know we're not supposed to get too technical, but I will, because I think it's interesting. Few of you will enjoy, Beth will enjoy this. This walk by the, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Um, This is what's called a a subjunctive. And that just simply means it's in the realm of possibility. All right. The command walk by the spirit. And then if it were as a subjunctive, you would think it would say, and there's the possibility then that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And I thought, well, that seems strange. But then just this morning I'm reading and I notice there are two negations in front of this. And all that simply means is that when you negate a subjunctive, you make it a very, very, very strong promise. If you use one negative, it is a strong um, promise. If you use two negatives, it is 
probably the strongest way to make a statement. For instance, we've all heard this. You've probably heard people say this, that um, in Hebrews it says, and I will never leave you or forsake you. And you've heard preachers say, that means that you will never, ever, not ever leave you. No, never, ever, absolutely not forsake you. That is a subjunctive with two negatives. That's why they get that. Here's another place. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Same grammar construction. And no one will ever, absolutely never, ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. And here's the same in construction. I say, I command you, walk around, be in the Spirit, and you will not, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. A Spirit-controlled life will hinder us from walking around in the flesh Let your conduct be by the Spirit. You have been given the Spirit. God has given you His Spirit. And and you've seen, as He's talking to the Galatians, you've been given the Spirit of God. You've seen His miraculous works. And now, let His presence be attested to by your manner of life. Freedom from sin is not by the law. That is some sort of self-determination. I'm going to try to will myself to obey God's commands, but I am going to obey God's commands by the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit. Walk around in the Spirit. You will not obey the the carnal desires of your flesh. Why? Because the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in you. That's where he's going. You were called to freedom. And it's the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of freedom. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. That Spirit is now dwelling in you. You are free people. And you are free to not sin. Of course, that's easier said than done now, isn't it? So you are free from sin. You are free to serve. Look at verse 13. Again, for you are called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You should note that freedom and love here are synonymous with one another. To be free is to love, and to love is freedom. And I want to define love this way because it is so utterly devoid of meaning today. So my definition, the one that I like, and since I'm giving this message, I'm going to give you the definition that I like. But you probably, it's not new. I didn't make it up or anything. I read it somewhere. But love is seeking another's highest good. I think that's a good definition. To love somebody means that I will seek out their highest good. For God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only son. God loved the world. So what did God do? He sought out our highest good. He realized that our highest good was not political freedom or economic freedom or uh, a wonderful Supreme Court or, you know, any of that. Our highest good was to be reconciled to God and have our sins forgiven. And so God did not send us a political ruler or a Supreme Court judge. God sent us a Savior because that was our highest need from His perspective, and His perspective is right. Our highest good was to have a Savior. And so when we love one another, we are then to seek out the another's highest good. 
By the way, it is the Spirit then who enables us to live this way. He then goes on and he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The freest person is the one who loves others. Do you want to be free? Love your neighbor as yourself. As long as I serve my own needs, I am in bondage and I am not free. Do I want to be free? Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, who now animates me. And think, I didn't plan this, but Jaime read this scripture and it was so appropriate. What did Jesus say? I did not come, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He is seeking out your highest good. Serve one another. The Holy Spirit enables us. Freedom in the Holy Spirit means that we serve one another. And the Holy Spirit that now dwells in you, that is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is now living His life out through you. And He came to serve and it is that Spirit who is now dwelling in you. And if we are living for ourselves, we are living in bondage. We are not walking in accordance with the Spirit. We are sinning. We will destroy and blemish the name of Christ and destroy His church. Well, not that that's we might destroy a local expression of the church. Let me clarify. But it is Christ who came to save and it is, that now, it is now that spirit who is dwelling in you. So how do we do this? Well, I'm going to put a quote up here from uh, Martin Luther. I think that this is very good. It might be a little uh, disruptive to some, but I think it's very good. How do we serve one another? Here would be Luther's statement on this. Performing unimportant works such as the following performing unimportant works, such as the following, teaching the erring, comforting the afflicted, encouraging the weak, helping the neighbor in whatever way one can, bearing with his rude manners and impoliteness. Really? Putting up with annoyances, oh, labors, and the ingratitude and contempt of men in both church and state, obeying the magistrate, treating one's parents with respect, being patient in the home with a cranky wife and unmanageable family and the like. Here's what it means to serve one another. But through love, serve one another. To love your neighbor as yourself means costly service in the ordinary duties of daily life. The ordinary stuff. The regular everyday things, putting up with one another even when they bother us. I will love you and I will seek out your highest good. And you'll put up with me and I'll put up with you. Bible tells us that there is no greater love than this, than a person lays down his life for another. But here's the thing. Rarely will, be a, will a person be called upon to sacrifice his or her life. I would, I would ex- suspect that probably none in this church, or at least few in this church, will ever be called upon to take a bullet for your child or your spouse. Maybe. That may happen. You jump in front and take one for your wife or for your husband or for your child. That may happen. I do not suspect that many, if any, in this church will throw themselves on a hand grenade to save the lives of their of troops around them. You will probably not be called upon to do that. 
but you will be called upon every day, every moment, the second that you leave this church, the second from this point on, you will be called to lay down your life for another. Yeah, not in taking a bullet, but in that. Bearing with his rude manners, his impoliteness, putting up with annoyances, putting up with labors and the ingratitude and contempt of men in the church and the state, obeying the magic. These are the things that we are called upon every day to do to lay down our lives to serve and to love one another. Paul tells us in Romans 13:8 to owe nobody anything except the debt of love. You are in debt to your brother. You are in debt to your sister. I don't know about you, but when I'm in, in debt to say, you ever owed somebody money? I know you probably haven't, but if you owe somebody money, that awkward time when you, you see them out like at Walmart or something, you're like, oh, you know, oh, do I, have, do I have it? Do you think the same thing when you see your brother and sister? Oh, have I loved you? Have I served you? Have I sought out your highest good? Not do I have the 20 bucks that you loaned me last month which if you love them, you'll pay it back. But have I served you? Have I given my life for your highest good? And so you are free. The Holy Spirit frees you from sin and He frees you to serve. Here's the interesting paradox. You should note that Christianity is a bit of a paradoxical faith. That is, the freedom to serve makes us servants. Makes you a slave. The Holy Spirit, therefore, enslaves us to love one another. By the way, this slavery is freedom. Do you want to be free? Seek out your neighbor's highest good. Love your wives. Love your husbands. So we are free from sin. We are free to serve. And the third area is that we are free to fulfill the law. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. This comes from Leviticus chapter 19, 18, and it is also given to us by Christ himself. We should note, let's clarify any misconception here, that Paul is not a hater of the law. I know you can read the book of Galatians and think that Paul hates the law. Paul loves the law. He loves the law when it is used rightly. And the way Paul tells us the law is used correctly is that the law drives us to Christ. It reveals our deficiency. It compels us to a remedy that is beyond ourselves. The law says that here's where, here's where you're broken and you do not have the ability to fix yourself. Which calls you to say, then where is my remedy to be found? And there, hanging on a cross, is Jesus Christ the righteous. God has not nullified his moral law. He does not say, now you get to murder people and covet and do all those things. Paul would also realize that the law cannot justify, it cannot put you in right standing with God. However, once a person is justified, once a person has right standing, he will keep the commands out of love for the one who set him free. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that very thing. You cannot save yourself. And so we have the Son of God crucified for us that we might be saved. He will set you free. And because you are free, you are free now to seek out other people's highest good, which will 
only enhance your freedom. You say that's too hard. It is. But the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit working out the life of Christ in you will enable you to do what you could not do. You could not save yourself and you cannot live the Christian life by yourself. It is all by God's grace. It is all a work of the Holy Spirit. And if you think you can save yourself or you think you can live out this Christ, the Christ-like life on your own, you are sorely mistaken. You need God's Spirit. Fortunately, if you belong to him, you have his spirit. So I'll conclude then with this. Both legalism and license are enslaving. Both of them lead to the ruin of the individual and both of them will destroy a church. Legalism and license will destroy you individually and it will destroy the community that you worship with. However, we are called to freedom. That is, we are free now to love one another. We are free to seek out one another's highest good. And I would admonish this church, if you are part of this church, if you call this your church home, I admonish you to love your neighbor as yourself. I admonish you first to love God with all of your being and second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, we get on one another's nerves. Yes, we annoy one another, but we do not separate ourselves because you annoy me. Imagine if Christ loved us like that. <laughs> you bug me. Imagine the disciples, they had to get on Christ's nerve. Just had to. Because he says, have I been so long with you and you still don't get this? We have the freedom to love one another and so we join together with one another even though sometimes we bother each other. We will seek out one another's highest good and this will be done in our daily life. It will be done on a daily basis. It may be done on an hourly basis because there is no greater love than this that we lay down our lives for one another and so fulfill the law of God and so exalt the name of Christ who gave for our highest good. Let's stand. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you, our Father of love and grace, and we would ask, Lord God, that you would enable us to do that which we, what we cannot do. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. I just cannot. I cannot love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just cannot. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would fill me and enable me and empower me to do the thing that I cannot do. Lord, I could not save myself, and yet you saved me. And so now we are asking, Lord, that you would continue to do for us what we cannot do ourselves, and that is to love you with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so fulfill the law and so to exalt the name of Christ our Lord. And so have mercy upon us, Lord God. Keep us, bind us together in love, Lord God, and enable us to do your will and be pleased with, and be pleased with us. For Christ's sake, amen.